Welcome to SkyCast Episode 2, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing Episode 4-2, Heavy Lies the Crown. Um, before we get started, I just want to talk a little bit about our overall feelings for the episode. What did you think? Um, so as an editor, I always put things in terms of books. So I very much saw the last episode as almost like a short story connecting seasons three and season four. And this episode felt a lot like a first chapter where it was kind of setting the scene and establishing all of the characters. Um, but the action still hasn't quite happened yet. Yeah, I completely agree. That's exactly what I was going to say. I really liked this episode. Um, I felt like with every first episode, it is a bit of a transition. And it's nice to see all those loose ends wrapped up. But I'm always a little bit anxious for like the new story to get started. And I feel like with uh, with most of the time with episode two, that's really where we, we set the, the stage for what's coming. Um, and that's very much what happened here as well. I, uh, I did like this episode. I didn't love this episode. No. It wasn't one of my favorites. I don't think it, I loved this episode, but I liked it. Um, all right. There's a ton to talk about this week, uh, so we're just going to jump right in and get this party started. Uh, I think we're starting with the Polis plotline first. Uh, I think that's going to be the easier one to unpack before we get into uh, the delinquents back in Arcadia. Um, so we're opening on a meadow rock cliff, and you see this kind of glowing butterfly which we haven't seen since season one. Am I right? Yeah, this butterfly. Let's talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we come to find out later on that uh, Ilion, who's living in this kind of hippie commune we see at the beginning, yeah. um, he is part of Trishna crew, which is the glowing forest clan. So that's, I mean, I'm guessing the obvious reason why this glowing butterfly is here. Um, but I did wonder too, like when I think glowing butterfly, I think Octavia and is this maybe connecting them in some way early on? I think so. I think, like, her first symbol on the show was the butterfly. I think she has shed that <laughs> um, husk since then. But She's become more of a wasp now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I do think that she will always be associated with the butterfly. I think um, the fact that Ilian is from the Glowing Forest clan is another, like, significant... Um, connection here I just yeah it's already setting it up so that there's there's something a brewing um and we see Ilion who we've heard a lot about in promotional materials um we all were very excited to meet him for real um and he has actually taken the chip at this point this is still kind of a few days prior to this actual episode um Ilion's taken the chip and he is holding his mother hostage trying to force her to take the chip as well uh, he kills his father and his brother at Ali's urging, uh, who ends up like standing right beside him. But his mother doesn't break. And so Ali kind of tells him, okay, we'll kill yourself. So he goes to kill himself, and that is when Ali realizes that Clark is pulling the lever, and she disappears, which frees Ilian from her influence. Um, so Ilian tries to save his mother, but it's, it's too late. Yeah. Um, and his mother asks him to avenge her. Yeah, I think those are interesting last words from a mother to a son. Maybe not in in a grounder <laughs> link culture, but for me, you know, I, I feel like the quintessential mom figure in media is usually represented as a pacifist, as somebody who wants peace for their children and wants their children to be happy. I think hearing the words avenge me from a mom was just very jarring I don't think it's out it's inconsistent it's very consistent it's just interesting to me that they continually like commit to those choices um even the moms are are bloodthirsty <laughs> and I did like seeing uh Erica Sarah again uh, yes. as Ali I mean as much as you know we all hate Ali <laughs> oh no I love Erica Sarah we love Erica she Sarah. is so good um, so we, we, of course, flash into Polis, and we see Kane and Abby having sex. Hot cabby sex. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> and I wanted to point out that Michael Beach, who, as we know, played Pike, uh, tweeted about this. He's like, see, old people are still hot, <laughs> which I loved. Um, Abby goes to leave, and then she's kind of reaching over to take this necklace where she has Jake's ring, and she hesitates. And is this something that she always wore? I never noticed this before. You know, I've never noticed this either, but I'm not willing to bet that she hasn't always worn it. I just haven't noticed. <laughs> uh, and Kane tells her, you know, that Jake is a part of who she is. Um, and he puts the necklace on for her. Yeah. 
And their relationship, it's, I mean, they've come so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, like we said last episode, the hate to love is is my favorite way for a couple (laughs) to get together. Um, And it feels so natural and organic um, for them to be in this place now um, from where they started. And I just, I love how they act like adults. You know, I, I don't think these kinds of conversations, I mean, just from the nature of like, the delinquents not old enough to have been married before you know would not have normally cropped up but I do appreciate how there is like a level of maturity and understanding um from these characters who are who are a little more seasoned yeah absolutely um we flash into what we like to call dark Tavia <laughs> this is the new uh scary uh, Octavia who kind of wears a cloak and looks very intense all the time <laughs> even more intense than nor- I mean like it's something to be said that like without grounder makeup on and without like you know the like ratty messy hair she's like a- has a very polished look here but it's even scarier mm-hmm. um so we she's spying on a Trishna crew group meeting um like I said wearing the super dramatic cloak uh, and the Trishna crew ambassador, Rafael, is talking about how he'll challenge Roan, who he thinks is a traitor for helping Sky Crew. Um, and Ilian was with him, and Ilian himself wants revenge for his family. And so Rafael promises him that his clan will kill Sky Crew once as Gata falls. Um, so from this scene, we're already getting kind of a good taste of who Ilian is and who he's going to be this season. Yeah, he's a little, you can already see here just through this exchange, he's not like bloodthirsty he he's he seems a little bit more reasonable than his like fellow clan members who i think are like a bit of a fanatics um with this like anti-technology and and you know just really wanting to take power from roan um and i think this is going to set up his character nicely already positioning him as somebody we can sympathize with rather than categorize him as like an enemy mm-hmm um, Kane in the throne room is talking to Roan, and he's telling him that Raphael's going to challenge him. And Octavia reminds Roan that he can pick someone to fight in his place, since he's, you know, still recovering from the bullet wound. Um, but Roan won't, because he thinks he'll look weak. Um, which I love here, Octavia reminds him that Lexa kicked his ass the first time around, and he was still at full strength. Yeah. Which, so true. Although I do think that Lex is probably a bit more powerful than Raphael, the glowing forest <laughs> clan member. I, I agree, <laughs> um, but I, I think that her point still stands, that, like, he's not at his best here. No. He's, I mean, like, a small child could probably beat him <laughs> right now. Uh, but Rowan refuses to cancel the gathering because, you know, he, he wants to still honor Lexa's original coalition, and he's really trying to keep the ambassador groups together. And he thinks, you know, if he lets this continue... It'll still keep the peace. And he does. I'm not sure if he actually thinks he can win. But like, what do you think? I don't know. <laughs> he's kind of arrogant. He is. Um, but I, I think he's a little nervous. I at think this he's point. a little nervous. I mean, you you can tell he's nervous because he like allows Kane and Octavian. We'll get into this later. He allows them to try to avoid this entirely. So he he is nervous. Uh, and then Kane says, I'll go talk to the ambassador to try to find a peaceful solution. Exactly. So uh, in Polis, then later on, we see Roan and Echo sparring. And it's, like we said, not going so well for Roan. But you know who it is going well for? Echo. <laughs> Looking so damn hot. Tazia Telly's looks amazing. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And Abby tries to step in saying, like, you know, I don't want you to do all my hard work. Um, but Roan doesn't think her help is necessary anymore and basically tells her to go home. Yeah. Um, and at this point, too, Echo is still questioning why Roan has faith in Sky Crew. And he tells her that Sky Crew is going to save them from Prime Fire. So he kind of, like, lets them in on the on the secret. Yeah. I thought that was interesting how early – I guess I shouldn't be surprised with this show. They don't want time to keep secrets. But um, I did think it was interesting how early on he told her. I, w- I don't think I was expecting that. Were you? I didn't know – I mean, definitely not this early in second episode. Yeah, this was early that I thought. Yeah. I'm always nervous with how much information Echo has. Yeah. So, like, giving her extra information just feels like feeding the fire. Anything she can have, she's going to use. use. Exactly. Um, Echo thinks that Sky Crew is lying, and Roan tells her that she can go to Arcadia and find out, you know, if his trust is well-placed after the fight. So, we're assuming this is going to come up in future episodes. Um, I'm a little bit worried for Arcadia. Oh, yeah. The second that he was like, well, you can go and check in on them. 
afterwards. I was like, great, she's going to show up and it's going to be like the one time that they're taking a break and like <laughs> trying to like enjoy the time left to them. And she's going to like, you know, interpret that as them slacking off and, and enjoying their new earned freedom and there's no emergency <laughs> at all. And I just like am envisioning her like blacked out rage and like slaughtering everyone. <laughs> Um, we see Raphael holding a meeting with his followers later uh, about challenging Roan, and then Kane comes over and tries to talk to him, asking him to reconsider, saying, you know, Sky Crew isn't your enemy, uh, the clans are stronger together, and none of them are having this, like, at all. No. Um, Kane, you know, he really believes that everything can be solved by diplomacy, even though we've been shown in the show time and time again that it can't. And especially now that Lexa's gone, Lexa was, you know at least respected enough to maintain that peace. I don't think Kane is respected enough at this point. No, and neither is Roan. I don't think either of them have earned that level of respect um, that Lexa commanded over the coalition. Um, and I I just love how, how dedicated Kane is to diplomacy. This is such a wonderful evolution in his character that we've seen progress from season one. And I, I just find it so refreshing. Um, and I love how committed he is. Yeah. Um, I also like Ilian scoffs at this when he's saying, you know, Sky Crew isn't your enemy. Um, and he says that Sky Crew made him murder his entire family. So that kind of sets up a, a different vendetta, more of a personal vendetta for him than political. Absolutely. And I think, you know, um, Octavia points out that he's being used by Raphael for political gains. But I don't think he cares. He's just in it for his family. It's true. Like, I, I think he, he knows that he is kind of being used. But as long as Raphael is, you know, challenging Roan and promising to destroy the Sky right. Their interests are aligned at this particular moment. Exactly. Um, and can we talk about Octavia's hair? I love it yeah. so much. Oh, my God. I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with her. I'm obsessed with her. Every and everything she's wearing. I mean, like her dark Tavia look. She looks like <laughs> I keep saying this to Sarah um, when we're watching the show. She looks like an elf. She looks like a magical, like, fairy elf. Like a murderous magical fairy elf. But she it's such just a great bone structure, and you can see it now that her hair is pulled back. It's, she's just absolutely stunning. It's a little bit, like, crazy how beautiful <laughs> she is. Um, later on, we see Kane and Abby sharing goodbye in this really sweet scene, and Abby's taken off the necklace. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, what is, what is the significance of that? Is she... Just saying that she's letting go of Kay, of Jake and then kind of giving herself over to Kane's uh, romance? Or, I mean, I was a little surprised, actually, since, you know, Kane at the beginning had said, Jake's a part of you. You don't have to get rid of this. Yeah, I think Kane maybe, like, overcompensated by saying you can have your cake and eat it, too, at the same time. And I'm OK with that. And I think, like, she, she definitely appreciates that acceptance from him. But I think for Abby, she needs to move on. You know, she can't continue to hold on to Jake and be with Kane at the same time. Not only is that a complicated situation, given how eager Kane was not only to float Jake, but to float Abby in the beginning. But also, I think just as like a as a person who's like starting a new relationship, like you need a clean slate and like holding on to your widowed husband's ring is is a reminder. Yeah, I think it was for her, not for Kane. I think so, too. Um, was Abby was literally the only plot reason for Abby to be in Polis this episode was so she and King could have sex sure I, I'm not complaining no <laughs> no that's fine <laughs> I needed that <laughs> um, we later see Dark Tavia swooping in on Raphael's uh, dinner with her totally inconspicuous cloak yeah I mean like if you're gonna be an assassin Octavia could you not dress like one you're like walking around in your assassin cloak and daggers. I mean, like, you're just like a, it's like a giant luminescent sign. Like, I'm here to kill someone. I mean, I think as soon as we saw her in this scene, we were like, mm, Raphael's a goner. Yeah, because she looks like an assassin. She is an assassin. But that's my point. Like, I feel like an assassin would try to blend a little more. Uh, she does give him one last chance to back out of his fight with Roan. But Raphael calls her a little girl and tells her that she's not worth his blade. Yeah, I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Um... I don't know. I have a question. Do you feel like this is in some way a form of sexism? And if so, is this the first time that we've really seen a sign of sexism from the grounders who are normally pretty like gender equal opportunity? I I don't feel like I've ever seen them 
uh, use gender against somebody before, like I feel this instance is doing. Um, I don't really think it's sexism. I think he was trying to find anything to say that he knew would needle her. I don't think he necessarily believes, you know, little girls can't fight because we've clearly seen that little girls can. Yeah. Namely, you know, Lexa and, you know, others. Um, but I, I think it was more of just him trying to find something to upset her. Yeah, maybe that's fair. I don't know. It bumped me the wrong way. I feel like it's dishonorable to even bring gender into the equation. I don't know. I feel like this was a I know a, a more abrasive exchange than I would have expected. True, although I'm not sure how honorable he is. I don't know. I feel like there's just like a code of understanding in grounder culture that like, you know, everyone's a warrior. Like, I don't know. Um, but he refuses to back down, so Octavia stabs him in the ear with a stiletto knife and then wipes the blood out so no one knows that he was murdered. Um, just yeah. like her true assassin. Yeah. Yeah. She has fully embraced her new job title. And later on in the throne room when the ambassadors are gathering, Echo enters and tells everyone that Raphael has been found dead. Uh, his heart has stopped. <laughs> So it, it's definitely clear here that Roan and Echo and Kane, they all know it's Octavia, but that she made this decision on her own. Yeah, no one told her to do this. I think you can see that they're registering as both shocked and not surprised in the slightest um, that she did it. There was there was a real focus seen on Echo watching Octavia, and it almost seems like they acknowledged her more, um, like her acknowledgement was more important than the others. Do you know why that would be? I don't know, but I actually noticed Kane looking at her like for a really long time. You can like see his disappointment because his diplomacy has failed, and her action is what ended ultimately like resolved to this conflict. But I think he's just so disappointed in her. Um, you know, him and Abby are sort of in that boat together. I get that. I do have to say, I think this was the best and really only option they had in this situation. Oh, I agree. Roan would have been dead. I mean, assassinating people isn't the best way to solve conflicts, but they are working on a goal in Arcadia trying to save people before the end of the world. And to do that, they need Roan to stay in power. And Roan would have lost this fight. He would have. And I also think, like, it's really great to just say, like, diplomacy will work and everybody needs to be you know communicating and honest and earnest with each other but like this is like high complex politics here you have to get a little dirty like nobody escapes this level of politics without sort of sacrificing something and I do hate that this is kind of teaching Octavia that murder is the way to solve her problems but at the same time like in this situation it's kind of what had to happen yeah I don't think she needs any more encouragement unfortunately uh, and we see Ilian here turn to Octavia and ask if she'll kill him too. And she kind of ignores this and just says, you know, I'm, I'm sorry about your family. Um, which is interesting. Octavia isn't usually so emotionally perceptive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, she seems to genuinely care about him and his family and like sort of like emotionally connect with him and his misfortune in a way she has not been able to connect with her own people. And I think this is part of a larger pattern that we've seen with Octavia, where she she um, instinctually looks to grounders um, for ground, for people from the grounders to like, emotionally connect with and for acceptance, uh, because I don't think she's ever felt completely safe or at home with the citizens of the Ark. Like she's never considered them her people. Um, and now, you know, it's just sort of like a, a habit for her. I mean, deep down, she knows how it feels to watch people she loves die. Yeah. Yeah. She can sympathize here. Um, so yeah, wrapping up that plot line, Dark Tavia, Hood, Assassin, there is unrest in Polis, and I think it's only going to get worse from here. Yeah, I, I think that's fair to say. I think we're just getting started. So now to dig into what I think we've all been wanting to talk about, the Arcadia plotline. Um, we come into Arcadia seeing Bellamy, Clark, Raven, and Monty all trying to find out a way to ride out this radiation. They need someplace big enough to hold all 500 members of Sky Crew. Although Clark reminds everyone that it's not just about saving Sky Crew, it's about saving everybody. Um, but never, no one else seems really as on board with this as Clark does. I think they're just kind of humoring her at this point. Yeah, I think it's interesting that she's the only one adamant about saving everyone. Um, I think she's the only one who is... She's definitely the most pro-grounder Sky Crew person. Um, I don't know where everyone else is at in their sort of 
allegiance to them or sort of like acceptance of them, especially after they just tried to like keep them all captive in <laughs> Polis. So yeah, it's hard it's hard to de- determine how much they're actually committed to saving the rest of, of them as much as Clark is. Mm-hmm. I mean, for Raven's point, Raven wants to tell everyone the truth and crowdsource a solution. Uh, and she brings up the calling about how people volunteered and they were given a choice. Yeah. And it's a choice that she tells Clark that Clark's dad died for. And this is the first of many times that someone's thrown something back in Clark's face. Yeah, the first of many times that Raven will throw something back at her fellow delinquents mm-hmm. um sassy sassy raven this episode this episode yeah. yeah not the first time not the first time in the show because poor clark <laughs> but we'll talk about this later uh and then monty realizes that they can stay on alpha station did you see this coming because i didn't no i thought this was brilliant yeah i, I mean it, it's still you know only episode two right it concerned me because it was so brilliant and would have been fantastic except we're in episode two so clearly, clearly I'm thinking it's probably not going to work out or as we come to find out later, there aren't that many people who can actually stay on this station. Yeah. I was a little bit like, oh my God, that's so smart. Oh my God. Not now. A <laughs> <laughs> little too early to celebrate. Um, Miller and Brian and Bellamy are talking later about heading to farm station to get a hydro generator, which is going to allow all 500 Sky Crew members to stay in Alpha Station and it's going to, to make water for them. Um, Brian is not so thrilled about going back, uh, but since Pike is dead, he's the only one who can show them where Farm Station is. Um, and I loved here that Brian is the only one to really call what Octavia did to Pike as murder. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I mean, it's fair because Brian was part of Pike's people and he, he looked up to Pike in a way that our other characters did not. Yeah, he did. I also, you know, he mentions that he was an elected leader, but I think you can still be loyal to somebody and recognize their flaws. And I think Brian is a little bit blindsided where Pike is concerned. I don't think he's willing to admit fault um, in a way that I find irritating, um, but understandable. I will say, I think in America right now, we've all realized that you can have an elected leader that people don't believe in and might not be trustworthy. (laughs) Yeah. And who makes big mistakes. Mm -hmm. Um. And Brian does say that last season, uh, Pike murdered the Grounders to save Miller and people like him. Uh, And I'm not going to dwell on the massacre from last season because that could be a whole other podcast in and of itself. But I just want to state once and for all, this was a terrible way to save Sky Crew. I mean, if Clark hadn't been around to talk Lexa down that day, it would have started a war that would have devastated everyone, not just grounders, but also sky people. It was an incredibly naive move that I think they have sort of retroconned trying to pretend like it would have been this great strategical like victory. It's just that's not realistic in this setting. It was not it was a stupid move. It was dumb. But we're moving, gonna move on past that. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, out there. We can put it to rest. <laughs> This is the first real scene that I've I've really been paying attention to Brian. I think last season I was still like so caught up in other storylines that this one I didn't give as much recognition or recognition for, but Brian's hot. Oh, Brian is so hot. <laughs> yeah. Um Jasper's showering and singing later and Monty's kind of watching him and he comes over and invites him on the trip to farm station. But Jasper doesn't want anything to do with what they're all doing. And he, he doesn't want to keep any more of Clark's secrets. Yeah, he calls them pointless tasks. Um, this is obviously a clear difference in perspective between Jasper and Clark. Clark is, again, she has this optimism and determination. She's trying her damnedest to save everyone. And Jasper's just not interested in it. He, he just doesn't see the point. I mean, he's he's definitely no longer wanting to kill himself. But he's also definitely not okay. No, no. He's not okay. Uh, They do the jaunty clap, which is a nice callback to some more innocent times, but it doesn't feel the same anymore. No, I think it's supposed to feel this awkward. You know, Monty sort of like reluctantly is amusing him and or humoring him just for the sake of of old times. But you can see that he's not happy with this Mm -hmm. situation. Um, So the delinquents are preparing for their away mission 
And Raven reminds everyone that they need to take care of the hydrogenerator because it's filled with explosive hydrazine. <laughs> uh, we've coined a new term here. It's called Raven Splains, which is basically anytime Raven relays information to characters, often info that they already know for the benefit of the audience understanding what's going on. Um, she does this a lot. Mm-hmm. I don't mind it because, again, she's awesome. And we need to know this and stuff. And we need to know this stuff. But I do think it's funny that, like, after she explains this, Monty immediately follows up and he's like, I know what hydrazine is I know what it does <laughs> I was here in episode or season one um it's just really funny that she explains these things to people who are also very smart yeah um Bellamy you know wants Clark or, or offers Clark to you know that he's, she still can come with them but Clark is determined to stay and figure out a solution to save everybody um I love number one of the delinquents we all see them watching this exchange between Clark and Bellamy which is just continuing the trend of everyone noticing the way Clark and Bellamy are together right I feel like it's like one of those situations where they're looking at them and they're like eyes shift like and whistling like I'm not paying attention like (laughs) and Bellamy in his awkward flirty wing I know which we didn't even notice the first time around because it's so bad it's so bad and we were like is that a wink is that is he trying to be playfully here. I mean, this is the guy who had a threesome with girls in season one, and now he like can't even wink properly. I think like he just lets, you know, I don't think he's used to doing the work. He's he doesn't have to. <laughs> if he just stands there, they will come. So you know, when he's like actively trying to flirt, I don't think he's got a lot of practice. <laughs> um, and Bellamy does establish, you know, we save who we can save today. Which is showing that he's clearly heeding Kane's advice from last episode about turning the page and moving forward and making better choices. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely taking that into heart, and it's really great to see um, for the setting up of the rest of the season. I, I do have a note here. We were watching this um, on TV, and a Galaxy S7 commercial came on, which... Are they still doing commercials for that? Didn't those all get recalled? I don't think I'd want to buy one anymore. But I really do wish, like, too bad they didn't have one of those at Farm Station because they could have had the hydro generator and save the slaves. Yep. All at the same time. Could have just gone boom. <laughs> um, so when the delinquents get to Farm Station, they realize that it's occupied by grounders. And we see the camera really focus in on Brian's reaction looking at Farm Station. Yeah, he seems physically shaken here. Um... Clearly, he hasn't moved on and is still pretty traumatized by the events that happened from Esgata when they landed. Um, And I think that we haven't really spent any time focusing on Brian or we're kind of like getting his POV here Mm -hmm. in a way that we've never gotten access to his experiences and his maybe the way he looks at things. Um, It's just really interesting that they're bringing him into the foreground and sort of like making him a little bit more prominent than he was in previous seasons. Right, it's like he, this is his first real episode too. I don't know if shine is the right word. No, but, but we're getting his POV for right. sure. Um, Brian is saying that he can take them out with guns. And Bellamy gives him this look like, we didn't come here to kill people today. Um, Bellamy clearly not wanting to kill any more people after everything that he's done. Yeah. Um, but Brian, you know, they butchered his friends, his family, um, which we knew, but I guess haven't really thought of as much from his perspective. Yeah, again, I think we're getting this point of view where you can't, it's not just numbers on a page. These are were breathing, living people that he witnessed being butchered and murdered. Um, and that has this sort of like palpable tangibility that we've never really had to come face to face with before especially because pike himself was such a fanatic that it was hard to identify with his point of view and also it was hard to sort of give a like proper realism to his point of view because he was like so exaggerative Mm -hmm. Uh, before they can do anything as soldiers show up and take them captive and uh, bring them to see the chief (laughs) <laughs> so the chief doesn't seem to know that Sky Crew and Asgata are allies. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm confused how information is disseminated through the clans. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, I feel like when a change of power happens, like they should be shouting that from the rooftops, like with little trumpets. I don't know how that is relayed throughout the rest of the the clans. Well, I will say that people at Farm Station here tend to be, or they seem to be at least, kind of removed from the rest of Asgata. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like they might just sort of be like a band of, of like, not outcasts, but like, definitely like on their own. Well, I just think they're more isolated because we kind of see earlier, I think that the, the slaves inside are doing 
work for like as Gata as a whole. They're That's I true. think building yeah. armor or something like yeah. that. Um but it's just interesting to me, like, I, I mean, it's been at least a week, right? Since yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, you would think that this would be, like, critically important information that everyone knows. But I, I guess know. not. Um, I, I also wonder, like, do they know anything about the City of Light? Or have they been that isolated that they haven't heard anything from Ali about, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, if so, God bless them. <laughs> Lucky dogs. Yeah. Um. But the grounders, so they end up releasing the delinquents and letting them go get the hydro generator because they're still afraid of Rune's wrath if he really did ask them to come, even though they don't really seem to view him as their king. Right. I think they're just not willing to risk the political collateral damage that it would incur. Mm-hmm. Back in Arcadia, we see Raven trying to organize volunteers to help quote-unquote, ready the ship for winter, as she's decided to call it. Yeah. Um, Raven is telling Clark that she can't run these repairs alone, especially with so few volunteers. Um, Raven's really unused to giving orders and having them followed. Yeah, I think she's used to giving orders to Clark and Bellamy and maybe Jasper and Monty and Harper, you know, in these, like, very, like, tight groups where she has, like, in the hierarchy of power, she's, like, maybe closer to the top. But commanding, like, the entire ship of people, you know, she's just very uncomfortable with this level of authority. Mm -hmm. You know, she just wears it very awkwardly. And she honestly doesn't have much faith in her ability to lead. I mean, this is really the first time that she is, like, becoming a leader in the wide sense. Um, And she definitely questions this as well, like, given her limited mobility, um... Which is interesting because we've always considered Raven's greatest strength to be her mind. Yeah, I think she's almost looking for excuses. She compares herself to Sinclair and wishes that he was there, um, which I think Sinclair even knew that their minds were not equal even prior to her upgrade. You know, she was so young and already so capable and so smart. Um, I think she's just, again, really uncomfortable, but also um, this this is an unsolvable problem. And I think the weight and the the mass of that is is overwhelming her. So there's like two things. She's like not used to stepping into an authoritative role. And also this problem is too big for one person to, to do alone. And mm-hmm. it's just sort of conflating into this emotional panic that you can see in her. I mean, Raven's always been special, but I think growing up, the one person who would encourage her was Finn. I don't think she had a good family. Um, right. And, and, and maybe Sinclair later on. Right. But Finn was really her her link to, to feeling good about herself. Yeah. And once she lost him, I think she lost a little bit of that confidence in her own abilities. Yeah. Agreed. So Clark says there's no one she trusts more than Raven, and she promises to tell everyone the truth once Belle comes back with the hydro generator. Uh, and then, of course, Jaha interrupts an otherwise wonderful scene. Yep. Girl pals lifting each other up. I'm always there for that. But uh, we learned he was an engineer, um, which is the first backstory we have on him, especially that which is not associated with him being a chancellor. Um, what other skills does he have that just, like, hidden away? I know. I mean, we've always sort of looked at him as this, like, sort of, like, prodigal, um, you know, leader. And I think I just assumed that he had been, like, groomed for that. It didn't even occur to me that he had, like, another life before he was a chancellor, which just sort of, like, brings up some interesting questions about who he was, what he can do, and what he can contribute. Uh, And he was apparently in charge of redesigning Sector 5, which Raven kind of throws back in his face, asking how many people died in the Sector 5 culling, which is just a great reminder to see that people are not forgiving Jaha for what he's done. Yeah, he has a lot of things to make up for or atone for. Um, But again, this is another instance of Raven throwing somebody's mistakes back into their face. I am curious to see how Jaha is received with the the wider Arcadia um, yeah, that, people. That would be really interesting to see uh, because he is such a public figure. And I think people know him and associate these atrocities with him specifically. I don't know if we're ever going to get to see that because that feels like fillery to mm, me. Yeah, we'll never see that. Yeah, but I wish we could. Yeah. Um, so when Bellamy and his team get inside Farm Station, they realize that Asgeta is keeping slaves, including Riley, which, Riley! <laughs> Everyone loves Riley. Who the hell is Riley? Who the hell is Riley? I don't know you. I mean, he's obviously everyone's best friend. Yeah, that makes me nervous. <laughs> I don't um, trust him. 
I don't either, but... I don't know why. <laughs> I think we're just used to, if someone new is on the 100, probably shouldn't trust them. I there are know. very few people who I'm are worthy of our trust. I'm very suspicious of him. Um, Bellamy sees a little girl who is, of course, very reminiscent of a young Octavia. Uh, as Gaeta's lost the fight already, honestly. Yeah, no, you just introduce Bellamy to a young, a little kid, and you're done. Bellamy sees a child. Everything else Everything seems- else falls away. <laughs> <laughs> He's already committed. Um, how much of Asgata's society here includes slaves? Is this like a one-off plot point or is this going to return? I mean, they specifically said that other clans hate Asgata because they keep slaves. And it just seems like, did they really just set this up for this episode? Because that's very much a... I don't think so. I hope not. I don't think the 100 does anything, you know, haphazardly. I feel like if this is a plot point and they included that line, we've got to come back to it at some point. I hope so. Um, back in Arcadia, Clark is stressing out over how to save everybody. Uh, and she ends up hearing some music and finds Jasper singing to the car radio. Jasper makes it clear that he doesn't want to survive. He wants to live. And he asks why she doesn't tell people and just allow them to choose what to do with their last months in a way that Allie didn't. Yeah, I mean, his point here is that she saved them from the City of Light because they didn't have free will. And she is essentially taking away their free will by not giving them the entire story here of, of what this could possibly be their last six months. And while I do think that is a good point, I ultimately think it's short-sighted mm-hmm. um, from Jasper. You know, he's just sort of like living in his own reality here. Well, um, yeah, I don't think he's even trying to be long-sighted. He's just at this point wanting to create the kind of world that he wants to live in, in the last six months. Yeah. Uh, but Clark is afraid that people will panic if she tells them the truth. Which, which they will. Which they will. Um, and Jasper says that's spoken like a true member of the council that sent a hundred kids to the ground to die. Yep. Slapped in the face again, Clark. Many times this episode. Many times. It's, uh, it is really interesting to see Clark grappling with almost the exact same choice that Jaha, Abby, and Jake all faced in season one. Yeah, there's definite um, echoes here from the first season, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but we should just talk about Devin Bostic for a second and how incredible his acting is. Right. He's incredibly amazing. Um, I did want to say with the Jaha, Abby, Jake, I think Clark is identifying with each of their choices in a different way. Um, and it will eventually end up making her own decision, but I loved seeing how, like, she takes pieces from each person's philosophy and has kind of built her own way to lead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the delinquents work on the hydrogen generator, Brian is adamant that they can't leave the slaves. Uh, and Bellamy understands this, but he says, you know, we can come back and save the slaves after we get the hydrogen generator home, which would have been great. Until the little grounder girl comes by and drops a note saying that the slaves are being moved tomorrow. Yeah, this note is ridiculous. There's a giant note that says, HELP! in all caps with exclamation points. I mean, it almost feels like, um, you know, an SOS sign like on the (laughs) beach somewhere. It's just very ridiculous and dramatic to illustrate this point. (laughs) And I don't understand, like, couldn't they still come back tonight? Like, couldn't they get the high generator back and then come back and save the slaves? Like, this whole plot line seems really contrived to me. Like, I, I can let it go because it's for character building's sake, but it honestly feels like there's, you know, more than just two choices that they've set up. Agreed. Um, it rubbed me the wrong way. But, in like, when the 100 does kind of make these contrived um, choices... Sometimes it's for plot, and that is irritating to me. But I think this is definitely just trying to set up where each of the characters are morally at the moment. Yeah, I agree. So I can let it go. Yeah. Uh, Brian says that, you know, it's now or never. And Bellamy realizes that they could blow up the hydro generator as a a distraction to save the slaves. Um, Brian and Harper vote to blow it up. Yeah. So Harper, like, specifically says, you know, Bellamy, you didn't leave us in Mount Weather, which I thought was a nice touch on Harper's point. Um, just saying, you know, you didn't leave us to suffer here. You can't leave them to suffer now. It's really calling into Bellamy's, you know, very emotional um, reactions to things. Yeah, and his altruism. I mean, ultimately, he is a good guy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, he forgets that. He does. <laughs> Like all, all, the, all the time. <laughs> um, Miller and Monty vote to take the high generator home so they can save more people down the road. Which it's it's interesting that Monty kind of points out the reasons 
for Bellamy's uh, decision making here and his inner turmoil. Yeah, he. It's it's nice to see that Monty is like sort of aware of of the the conflict that Bellamy is sort of grappling with and like you know anticipates his argument and already tries to like hide it off. Like let's just save some time here, um, which I feel like is more perceptive than I've I've seen Monty before. It's just I don't know if it, it's not out of character for him, but I just thought it was a nice touch. I actually think Monty's incredibly perceptive, and we've seen him in past seasons, you know, being the person to kind of provide that emotional support when other people aren't. Yeah, no, I meant specifically with Bellamy. I yeah, I mean, I mean, they don't, the only- they haven't had a lot of time of interacting, and I just really liked this dynamic. The only really person we see who's able to perceive Bellamy's emotions is, of course, Clark. And then everyone else just watching Clark and Bellamy together. Um, But, of course, it's up to Bellamy to decide to make the final choice. Yep. So, do you think Bellamy made the right choice? This is such a hard question. Yeah, Um, I don't know that I could say if I had been in that room looking at these little slaves that were my people, some of them are very young, I would have been able to leave them. I don't think I probably could have. Do I think that was the the smartest choice? No. I think ultimately saving thousands of people is better than saving seven people or however many people are in here. Um, you know, the numbers just it, it is a, it just comes down to the numbers and I don't know what I would have done. I mean, one of the great things about the 100 is there is no right decisions ever. It's all just about, you know, you take the information you have and you make the only choice that that seems like the best path to you. Um, in this situation in particular, I, I do think Bellamy made the right choice for his character, 100%. Like, that is what Bellamy would have chosen to do. Yes. Um, I think we get into this interesting discussion about you know, there's that quote where one person's death is a tragedy, a thousand is a number. Um, and it's like seeing people as numbers and not seeing them as people is not the best road to walk down because then you're able to kind of um, intextualize or textualize all of this as just, I'm doing what's right. Even if you die now, you know, other people are going to be saved later. And he right. doesn't know. He doesn't know if people later on will still be able to be saved down the road like they could still all die right and also I think he has you know he points out Raven will help them he has such incredible faith in Raven and her intelligence and her ability to solve this problem um I agree I think that when you start contextualizing things as simply numbers you lose a little bit of your humanity and I think humanity is something that Bellamy is in short supply of and he needs to (laughs) restock up so I do think it was the right choice for him But I also think, like, you look at 25 people, I think, that they saved um, versus 400 that they're maybe not going to be able to save later on. And it's like, which is the right choice? Like, the 25 people that you're looking at now who, like, you're very much like, I can save them now, but I don't know six months down the road if you're still going to end up dying. Um, And if you save those 25 people now, what about when you're looking at the 400 people later and thinking, you know, I could have saved all of you but I chose to save these other people too. Like, it's not as if the 25 people are the only people who are real people. It's still also the 400 later on who are real people that you gave up the opportunity to save mm-hmm. so you could save these 25. Mm-hmm. It's um, tricky. So that that's the 100 for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. Um, so obviously, because of this little girl, Bellamy makes the choice to save the slaves. Shock. So they blow up the hydro generator, and they take down Osgata, um, and they kind of take down this warrior who's trying to fight them, and Brian realizes that it's the same grounder who killed Monty's father. So for a moment, we think that Monty's going to kill this man, but instead he frees the slaves and lets them kill him with their bare hands. Yeah, I think we can see Monty has also come a long way. He's much colder and more calculating than he was when we first met him in season one. Um, Even just voting to use the bomb instead of uh, saving the slaves and now letting the slaves kill this person, you know, we can see his innocence has been shattered mm-hmm. um, in, in a different way that Jasper's has. But it's nice to see that their paths, while they have diverged, are sort of like equally digressing. I mean, I'm I'm still trying to think, I'm trying to figure out what I think about this. Like, why didn't Monty kill the grounder himself? I just don't think he's a murderer. I don't think he can do it. I think he wanted this person to be gone. I think he needed that revenge, but I don't think that he could do it himself. 
I mean, he he did it in a way that the grounder is dying now a much more painful death than he would have if he had just, you know, chopped him with the, the axe. Yeah, I'm, I'm not – I don't think that he cares about the grounder suffering. No, I, that's what I'm saying. I think it's really interesting that, like, he chose not to do it, but he also chose to free the slaves – Full knowing that they would come over and kill this guy, and it would be, you know, much more gruesome than. Yeah, yeah, it. it's brutal. Also, you know, he gives them their revenge as well. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, I think it's interesting that that Brian tells Miller, "This isn't your kill; it's Monty's kill." And I think Monty also recognizes that it's not just his kill. This person has been holding them captive, making them work as slaves. They have earned the right to take his life just as much as Monty has, and he's willing to share the pie. Mm-hmm. Um, later Clark kind of sees Jaha working and Jaha can tell that they're not really bracing this ship for winter. Um, he knows the burden of keeping a secret that he thinks, you know, will destroy his people. Uh, and he's just always so smug in his advice. He's so condescending and self-righteous. It's, it's as if he's like, you know, he, he acts as if he's been right all along and is glad now that he's able to finally impart his wisdom. Right. He has a good, uh, like a, an apprentice. Right. That he can, like, take under his wing. And I, like, I don't think Clark ever wanted to be her apprentice. She doesn't need your help. Mm. She's, like, a better leader than you could have ever been. He does treat her, though, as a leader with respect. Yeah, yeah. He treats her from one le- as one leader to another. I mean, he clearly is in awe of her. I just think that this is sort of like a one-sided relationship. where, it, Almost in a way of making Jaha feel important again, relevant again, is to find somebody who can use his advice and while that might be true, I just don't think Clark ever solicited it. No, she didn't. Um, and I do wonder, does Jaha miss being the leader? I mean, he, he has this huge savior complex for his people, or mm. at least he did, you know, back in season two. Oh, I think he still has that. I, I, I just can't tell if he's, you know, okay with kind of taking um, the, the back burner while other people go forward, or if he still in the back of his mind kind of wants to be the person who can, like, step up and lead everybody. I don't know if he wants to step up and lead, but I feel like he still wants to be part of the people who are making the decisions. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as a as the public figurehead, but he clearly is already making moves here to, like, in, not ingratiate isn't the right word, but to position himself as a confidant, as somebody who Clark can go to to t- talk about this and think these this decisions through. Um, I think he absolutely is hungry for that, and I don't think in purely just like selfish power grabbing ways, but in a way again to just sort of feel relevant mm-hmm. and important. You know, it's got to be difficult for him to have fallen so far from grace. Yeah. Uh, and I love that, you know, Clark spits back that he floated her father, but Jaha says that now she understands why. Um, it's great hear him talking about how people don't realize how hard it is to make decisions for an entire group of people yeah. and for them to all respect that choice. Right. Especially when like their interests are completely opposite than like another group's interests and they're all part of the same population. Mm-hmm. And we talked about this earlier too, but there are very distinct parallels in this episode between the way Clark and Abby kind of make decisions as a unit and then Clark and Jaha make decisions as a unit. She's not either of them, but she has definitely pulled from their experiences, I think. Oh, yeah. I I think, you know, young Clark, you can kind of think of her as like a sponge. Mm -hmm. And she sort of was like opportunely positioned to be ingesting all of this sort of like social behavior from her mom, from her dad, from Jaha, just because they were all part of the council. Um, And that's got to have been, you know, a first-rate education in leading, you know, that other people just would never have been exposed to. Yeah. Um, Jaha tells her that the only thing they can do in situations like this is to make the best decision they can with the information they have and then hope there's a forgiving God. So ominous. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not wrong. Uh, that is, the delinquents return later, and Miller is kind of talking to Brian, and he asks if they're okay, even though they were on opposite sides of this hydrogenerator decision. Uh, Brian wants Miller to at least say that he's thinking he could save the slaves, or that thinking that saving the slaves was worth it. And Miller says he wishes he could. Um, I think Miller could have phrased this better. I do think he could have said, you know, I hope it is. Because that would be the same sentiment, but in a, you know, more positive way. I feel like Miller, like, intentionally is using this phrase to antagonize Brian. Just, 
No, I don't think he he wants to antagonize Brian. I just think he well, honestly I, can't bring himself to say that this is the right idea. Yeah, I think I think he's just not willing to concede that this could be worth it. I, I just I don't think that he's re- ready to move on from this fight. Right, but I also don't think that Miller wants to push Brian away right now. No. Um, and that's why I think it could have been phrased in a different way that maybe could have smoothed things over. Yeah. But it wasn't, and Brian really just can't deal with him right now and walks yeah, away. he's pissed. Um, so, so Brian, he really doesn't view the grounders as people worthy of saving. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Brian is completely okay with murdering 300 grounders to save Miller, but is not okay sacrificing sacrificing this his enslaved people for the greater good it's sort of like we were talking about earlier with where where does your humanity come into play he doesn't view the grounders as worthy of of being you know classified as human the same way that their people are obviously like his experiences with them have led him sort of this like biased um point of view but I I just also think that you know Brian is in a really different place than where everyone else is Mm-hmm. I mean, I do think it's worth noting that the people, some of the people at least, who are slaves in this uh, farm station were grounders. Yeah. Um, but I don't think, I, I, I have to wonder if they were all grounders, would he have cared? No, I but don't think But it was just he... because Riley is everyone's best friend. And, and Right. I, I don't think that if he had, if there had not been any farm station civilians in there, I don't think he would have cared that they were slaves at all. And I mean, that... I think he might have cared a little, but... I don't think he would have been willing to sacrifice the hydrazine bomb. Right. I don't think so either. Um, Riley steps off the Jeep like the prodigal son returning. Oh, my God. Because everyone loves Riley. Even Clark loves Riley. She comes up and gives him a hug. Like, how does he know all these people? Right. And Bellamy looks at him like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, who are you? Who are you? Of course, Bellamy's like hugging the little girl at his side here. Yeah, he's such a little softy. <laughs> Uh, Raven notices that the hydro generator isn't there, and Bellamy admits that he chose to destroy it to save the slaves. Um, so Bellamy won't sacrifice any more innocent lives, and he thinks that he can live with the call that he's made, unlike prior decisions, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but as Raven points out, you know, you're not the only person who has to live with your call, as usual, and that without this hydro generator, only 100 people can survive on Alpha Station. Mm-hmm. So very, very subtle writers, you know, making this this 100 relevant again. Yeah, and it's the inverse of season one, right? Because season one, like, they had to escape the arc and survive on the ground, and now they have to go back and survive in the arc, um, which is just, like, a really nice uh, callback. Yeah, yeah. And, and Raven is, again, slapping someone in the face with the choices they've made. She has a lot of judgment toward people, even though, she, I mean, like, she is very smart, and she contextualizes things as you know analytical numbers um but she's never had to make these calls and so we don't quite know yet what she would really do in those moments yeah I I mean I'm I'm a little bit tired of her slapping everybody in the face with their previous decisions that they've made even though I tend to agree with her um about the like nature of those decisions I just don't appreciate her throwing it back at them I don't know I actually think that her kind of judgment makes them better I think that just being able to, you know, call out those choices they've made in a way that like Clark and Bellamy don't necessarily do with each other. Yeah, she checks often. them. She's yeah. definitely the the balance checks and balances for for the two of them. But I do think she will get a crash course in leadership this season and we'll see we'll see how she handles it. Yeah. Um Although Clark is also kind of a little annoyed with Bellamy at first, she kind of immediately moves on to plan C uh, because I guess she trusts Bellamy in the decisions that he makes and doesn't want to waste precious time. Yeah, no, she's ever practical. She's like, okay, this is our new reality. We've got to move forward. So Raven's more convinced, you know, now more than ever, we need to crowdsource this problem and that Clark has to tell Arcadia the truth. So, you know, Raven goes off to gather everybody and Bellamy asks Clark what they're going to do because, you know, she can only do the one thing that she can, she tells him. She uh, wants to hope there's a forgiving God. Yeah, they have nothing left. Um, I, I still don't think that Clark respects Jaha as a person, but I do think it's interesting how she's kind of taken his advice and is, is putting it to, to use. Yeah, she's quoting him directly. I think you can sort of extract, if you will, you know, the essentials and, and adopt it and, and make it your own without particularly um, – identifying with exactly like the 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 beliefs from the person who said it I I think she's borrowing here but I don't think she's copying 
Yeah. Um, in the speech to Arcadia later, we see her promising everybody that every single person will survive on Alpha Station. Um, I don't like that she blatantly lies here because Clark is a master manipulator. And I think there is a way she could have phrased this that she I, I think she really does want to believe that everyone will survive. But I don't think she now believes they're all going to survive on this station. I think she wants to find a different way. Definitely. Um, as Clark always does, find the third way. Um, I think she could have phrased this so it wasn't a lie. So later on, like, she could feel a little bit more absolved of that. But she just 100% lies here. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think maybe she lied just so that the in, if if everything sort of fails and this is their only option, that it can be directly her fault. She takes on all of the blame herself. She doesn't allow room for other people to be um, indicated along with her. And I think that while she could have phrased this in a way that was maybe a little bit more manipulative, I think she's just like trying to get the most bang for her buck and motivate them um, and also only blame herself. I mean, she was using only I instead of we, which was very much showing that, like, this is my decision. Yep. But I still think Clark could have found a way to not lie and to motivate people and to put the blame on herself. And she didn't. And I was a little disappointed in her. But, I mean, she made the choice that she made. And now we have to move forward. <laughs> Gotta live with it. And I, I thought it was interesting to see Jaha looking kind of proud over in the corner as she was giving the speech because he knows. He knows that something is not right and that they are not all going to survive. Oh, yeah. He can see right through the, the BS. Um, he, he knows that, you know, they can only support a certain number of people. He is an engineer. Yeah. And I think that he can tell just from the way that Clark is talking, again, it's too confident. It's it's too good to be true. And he can recognize that. A little irritating to think, but he's probably, you know, going to have to be one of the hundred that gets onto Alpha Station because he is an engineer and they're going to need that. Yep. So it's like, can't get rid of Jaha. Yep. I actually, I mean, I do like what Jaha brings to the table. I don't like him as a person, but I like him as a character, if that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense. I also appreciate... Um, the contrariness that he brings, but he just irritates me. <laughs> um, after the speech, Raven is furious that Clark lied, but Clark says that sometimes hope is more important than truth. And then Raven kind of throws back again that her dad would have been so proud. Right. Um, so how many times did we get called back to Jake in this episode? Oh, like seven. I mean, like Jake is so prominently featured in this episode. Um, it's kind of like we get it. It's like hitting us over the head with it. Um, and it's just really interesting how this show and Clark particularly grapples with with the truth and how complicated it is. And maybe, you know, is it always the best option? And we can talk a little bit about that more later. But it is really interesting to think about. Yeah, Clark does have a very firm belief, or she did in season one. She had a firm belief that her father was the moral compass, that he was, you know, right and always wanting to tell the truth. And she's realized in her experiences over the past three seasons that that is not always the case. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like you sort of grow up thinking your parents are superheroes and then you sort of have to like deal with the reality that they're human, they make mistakes. I think she's sort of clung to this idea that her dad was the morally superior being um definitely more than her mother and certainly more than Jaha or Kane and I think now that she's sort of stepped into this role she can no longer afford to have that sort of naive perspective on her dad and she has to really grapple with the reality that ultimately the choices that he was making endangered a lot of lives and she's not willing to do the same mm-hmm uh, and Clark really is not willing to apologize for this. She just tells Raven, you know, you wanted workers, now you've got them. Um, and Bellamy kind of once again reiterates, we save what we can today. And then unspoken is, you know, we'll deal with tomorrow when tomorrow comes. Mm -hmm. So I really love how they've set up the juxtaposition between how Clark and Bellamy and Raven all view decision making. It really shows what's important to all of them. Yeah. You, you get you get Bellamy, who's, you know, very much living in the moment, always run by his emotions more so than, especially more so than Clark and Raven. Um, yeah, he's very reactive. Mm -hmm. and, and just kind of that, like, we're going to do the things we can today and not worry about the future until the future comes yep. is something that's kind of always been who he was. But especially now that we have 
a due date for the end of the world. Yeah. He, he really isn't paying attention to the future. No, no, not at all. And I think that, you know, I don't, I wouldn't call it a luxury, but I do think that he's lucky and that he has other people to think of those things for him. I also, I don't think that he truly believes that they're going to be saved. I think he wants to have faith in Clark, or he does have faith in Clark, but in the back of his mind, I don't think he really believes that everyone's going to, you know, come out of this alive. And I don't think he thinks that he will get out of this alive. No, and I, I think more than anything, it's not really about what he believes. He just wants to be supportive of Clark. Well, which is why I'm just saying, like, he's making this choice, like, save the 25 today because he doesn't think he's going to be around for that, like, last decision, maybe. Absolutely. I agree. Um, and then, we, of course, we get Raven, who's, you know, very analytical, like a very numbers-driven person, which makes sense for the kind of person, the kind of character that she is. Um, but I, I, I am curious to see how this persona is going to carry on when she's forced to look people in the face and make decisions that are going to affect them. Of course. I, I mean, she, again, it's a luxury that she's never really had to make those kinds of decisions and never had to look it in the eye. Um, she and Bellamy are sort of like on opposite ends of the spectrum um she looks very far ahead in the future he looks very you know in the moment and I think you sort of have to find sort of like an equal ground between them for like quality leadership which brings us to number three Clark (laughs) who always wants to find the third option like if it were Clark's choice she would save the slaves and save the hydro generator right I guess the point is like if Clark had been there Everything would have gone off. Like could have. Could have. I mean, sometimes there is no third option, as we saw in season two when she had to pull the lever. Yeah, and also um, when, well, I don't know. We've talked about this, but I was going to say when Lexus tells her that it's no use and they have to let, um, they have to let Wachimahuzi bomb the village. Oh, right. They have to let the mountain men bomb. Yes, yes. Bomb was That was problematic. But I think when presented with two options, Clark usually finds the third um, that no one else has thought of before. And that sort of is what has always been the best part of her character and the most surprising part of her character. It's just um, delightful. Yeah. So let's move into favorite scenes. What was yours for this episode? Um, my favorite scene was the throne room scene where it's revealed that Raphael is dead and then the ens- ensuing exchange between Ilian and Octavia where she where he accuses her of doing it and she ignores it and, you know, just says, I'm so sorry for your family and your loss. Um, and I'm just, like, very intrigued by this relationship. They've put so much sort of time already into Ilian and his connection with Octavia. I, I'm i a little interested. I'm a little nervous that, like, if this is going to be romantic. It's a, it seems a little soon, but I have faith that they will do it in a way, if they're going in that direction, that makes sense. If it is romantic, I don't see it being like a Lincoln situation where she puts her whole heart and soul into it. I think it could be very much like she's trying to hold back and he might also be trying to hold back. I mean, he's he's lost a lot in his life. Yeah, I mean, I also, you know, Octavia is just not the same person she was when she met Lincoln. Again, she wasn't really a person and she just latched on to people um, and now she has sort of learned and matured and you know for better and for worse and I don't think she you know even if Ilian didn't present all of the like you know conflict that he does um I don't think she would have given herself over at all anyway um so that's just going to be really interesting and I'm excited to see where it goes I do think the connection that Octavia and Ilian have is through their pain and that in and of itself is not really a healthy connection to have no but maybe they can help each other yeah I don't know I would hope so um my favorite scene is where Octavia kills Raphael not because it's cool although I have to admit it was kind of cool oh it was so satisfying but it's more of just I thought it was really interesting to see just how far she's fallen she she really doesn't seem to have a soul anymore. No, and also, I mean, she, again, we see her joyous when mm-hmm. she's killing people. You know, it's really the only time she feels. I don't know if it's joyous is the word I would use, but she's, like, so just, like, in the moment, very methodical, like, I'm just going to get this done, 100% determined. There is a deep satisfaction that she got when she stuck that stiletto in his ear. I mean... And in a way, and then it sort of like, it was like a high and you could see her when they were talking about it, almost reliving the high, um, in the throne room. And when she's, you know, covering it up, she just, I think she's proud of herself and it's, 
disturbing. I don't think she's proud of herself. That's not a word I would use because I don't think at this moment she likes herself. But I think that she's glad that she did it. She thinks it was the right choice. And I honestly, I agree. I think it was the right choice I in this it, situation. I think it was the right choice too. Uh, favorite line? Um, so my favorite line was the when Clark told her even hope is sometimes more important than truth. And again, I think this is significant. Um, this is a theme that we see a time and again in this season. And then in the whole show, really, it's sort of this like balancing act between leadership, between um, optimism and reality. I think that this sort of sums up the entire show in a really beautiful, concise way. And I, I loved it. But I also have to wonder about the reverse. You know, sometimes the truth is more important than hope. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying that this is an accurate statement. I just, I, yeah, lo- no, I, I love this dichotomy, that this tension that this brings into to question. Um, and I love that she's talking to Raven because the two of them will continue to grapple with this foreseeably forever. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't, th- I think each is each situation is a case-by-case basis and you sort of have to determine every time yeah, what the right call is. Um, my favorite line is when Raven says, I'm not the chief. And Clark says, well, I'm not the chancellor, but here we are. And for what it's worth, there's nobody I trust more than you to do this. So it's just continuing the theme of Clark believing in Raven so hard that Raven has to believe in herself. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, despite how much attitude Raven gives Clark, I think she knows it comes from a place of of good. It comes from a place of deep concern and trying to fix everything. And I think Clark can appreciate that in Raven and and sort of can put aside the like interpersonal snarkiness um and really just give her support mm-hmm. and and shower her with with the praise that she deserves. Yeah, so next week we are going to be discussing the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Yeah, I mean that couldn't be more obvious. What are we talking about here? <laughs> Um, yeah, and so I guess we'll see you next week. That's our episode. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That's S-K-I-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at skycast. You can find us on Tumblr at skycast.tumblr.com. You can also tweet at us at our personal Twitter accounts. Um, I'm at bperlman 89 B P E A R L M A N eight nine, and I'm at Sarah R McCabe S A R A H R M C C A B E. Thanks for joining us on Skycast one more time. I'm Brittany, and I'm Sarah, and we will be back next week. <laughs>